turn to chapter 3 of the Gospel of John. We will begin reading verses 1 through 10. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? The word of God. Let us pray. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, we come humbly before the throne at this time to explore your word. Lord, I ask that you be... Manifest here in the midst of us, Lord, that your son be magnified, that he be increased, Lord, and that the speaker decrease, Lord. We just ask that as we enter into this holy, holy, holy portion of scripture, that your word rest within us, Lord, and that we be conformed to the image of your son through that word, Lord. We ask this all in his precious and holy name, the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So we've been working our way through the gospel of John, the gospel of John written by the disciple of Jesus, whom Jesus loved, the disciple who wrote this gospel, why? That she might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that believing you might have life through his name. That's John chapter 20, verse 31. We will, Lord willing, return to that verse over and over. As we work our way through this gospel, we want to keep our eyes on the purpose of the text. That these things are written, that she might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the son of God, that believing you might have life through his name. So there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. In this church body, we have been blessed, as long as I've been here, to be taught the truth concerning all things that I, in Scripture. And so, none of this will come as a surprise. You know the Pharisees were a religious sect. 
the uh, sect of Judaism who most strictly adhered to the law of Moses as it was understood by the Jews at that time. And they went further than simply um, applying the Levitical law. They have a series of rabbinical discourses that elaborate on the law and from it generate a set of extremely strict and complex rules that they attempted to follow to a T. These people, the Pharisees, were more devoted to the word of God as it was written to them than anyone else on the planet at this time. They were the most religious, the most strict, legalist group of people on the entire planet. No one knew more about the word of God. No one more um, seriously followed the word of God as they understood it than the Pharisees. And there was one of these Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Some people like to know what names mean. Nicodemus is actually a Greek um, sort of, it's like an Aramaic application of, of a couple Greek words. So you probably know the Greek uh, God that they worshipped, Nike, who is the God of victory. So this comes from that word, Nike. So Nicodemus means like victor over the people. Uh, Demas is the same root as democracy. So democracy is power of the people. So Nicodemus means like victor of the people, victor over the people. Which is an interesting idea because he's coming out of the Pharisees, this elite, legalist, religious sect. And not only is he one of the Pharisees, but he is a ruler of the Jews. So this person is high in status, extremely well taught, well learned, well read. And he comes to Jesus by night. Why does he go by night? Without speculating too far, I think it might be a reasonable guess that he goes by night so that he isn't seen. The Jews have a lot of kind of traditions and ideas about the night. Um, for example, you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't say hello to someone that you're walking by at night for fear that they might be a demon. That's one sort of folk tale that they have in the Jewish culture. Another is that a rabbi who studies deep into the night is blessed in doing so. Like there is some kind of blessing in the why. Uh, it was the saying, burning the midnight oil. So in this case, the leader of the Jews is going to Jesus in the middle of the night. And I, again, I think the fair interpretation of this is that he's going because he does not want to be seen. He is ashamed to be going to Jesus. And he doesn't want anyone to see him. But he does want to go to Jesus. What's a good time to go to Jesus? Anytime. Anytime is better than no time at all. So he goes to Jesus by night, and he says unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. Rabbi, this is a Chaldean word. It means teacher or master. It's a term of respect. So he is going before the Lord, and he's paying his respects, and he's asking we know that you come from God for no man can do these miracles except thou doest them with God, uh, except God be with him. Uh, 
Thou art a teacher from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. So he's paying respects, but he's not really asking a question. He's just saying, we know that you're from God. We can, we've seen your miracles. We've been learning over the last several weeks. We've been studying through John. He goes and he drives out all the people from the temple. And then what does it say? It says, uh, the disciples remember that he had said this unto them and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus said. And when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles, which he did. So he's in Jerusalem during the Passover doing miracles. Many believe Nicodemus is one of them. Nicodemus comes to him in the middle of the night and he just declares, we know that you're from God because of these miracles that you're doing. But Jesus Because he knows all men, as we've just learned in verses 24 and 25, answers, he's answering the question in Nicodemus' heart. He's answering the the reason Nicodemus came. Nicodemus doesn't have to tell him. Christ just knows. Right? Anytime we all, last time we were here, we said, go pray. Go pray before the Lord. Best use of your time. Of all the things you can do, prayer is the best use of your time. Almost always. Because Christ knows what you need. And he knows without you even having to ask. And Jesus answers and says unto Nicodemus in this case, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So this is... There's one, let's say there's two key verses in the 11 verses that we're looking at today. And this is the first of them. This is the first fact delivered here from our Lord that is of such central importance that we'll probably have to spend multiple (laughs) messages in this text. But he says, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be born again? And what does it mean to see the kingdom of God? Of God. So in First Peter uh, chapter one verse twenty three, it says, "Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. Not of a corruptible source. It's not a. It's not a bad source. There's nothing wrong. It's not flawed. It's not incomplete." It is not lacking in anything. It is an incorruptible source. It is a complete, it is a perfect source from which we are born again. By the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And we're born again because if we're not born again, we cannot see the kingdom of God. Sight is such a major theme in these first few chapters of John. Why is it a major theme? Because Christ is the light. And the light is the medium through which we, by which we see. You cannot see when you're in the dark. I know this sounds like incredibly simple and almost simplistic. And there is a simplicity in the divine nature of God. It doesn't, you don't have to be a super genius to understand these things. Christ is the light. Light is how you see. What do you want to see? You want to see the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? It is literally the dominion, right? The dominion of the king. 
the jurisdiction of the king. If a king rules over us a land, that is his jurisdiction. It's his kingdom. And so you want to see a jurisdiction, a place where Christ has dominion. That's, that is the greatest place that you can see with your eyes, right? And in order to see the kingdom of God, this place where Christ reigns, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is asking, he's a brilliant, learned man, and he's asking, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? It's a rhetorical question. He knows that you can't be entered again into your mother's womb and be born. But he doesn't understand or he's unwilling to understand what Christ is saying when he says to him, except a man be born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. So Jesus answers and says, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. First of all, we have to talk about this water question. There are two requirements to enter into the kingdom, according to this verse. One is that you're born of water, and the other is that you're born of the spirit. Well, being born of water, in the modern mind, we think that when someone gives birth, their water breaks. But that's not a phrase that they would have used back then. Um, And really, we have to ask ourselves, biblically, what does the water represent? Uh, And this... This is why we will spend a lot of time in these 11 verses, because you can't, there's just no way to breeze through this. Um, So the first instance of water in the Bible, of course, is in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. The darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved, fluttered, hovered upon the face of the waters. So the waters in Genesis represent sort of pre-creative whatever is there, right? The content of pre-creation, okay? Meaning, uh, in, the, in the Hebrew, there's a word, tohu vavohu, it's sort of without form and void, right? Without order and substance, without order or substance. And so the water, early in Scripture, represents this kind of primordial situation, pre-creation, pre-order, pre-substance. And he, so what... When we get here, it's been developed, and there's water in the sign of Jonah being swallowed by the whale. There's water, uh, like, where the Leviathan dwells. It becomes this motif of, like, the the source of creation, or sort of like um, like the pre-creative matter of creation. And so, really, all this, the thing that we have to understand is that, basically, you're going to be asking a question, right? What does it mean to be born of of the water? It could mean... Uh, birth in conception, it could mean birth as in passing the birth canal, or it could mean birth as in baptism, right? Those are kind of the three interpretations that people take of this. Well, we know that it's not birth by the birth canal because John leapt for joy in his mother's womb. We know that there's uh, um, a regenerate heart that happens in the womb for some people. We know that some people are saved in the womb. So we know it's not by the birth canal. The saying didn't exist back then. It just wasn't uh, this, that's not what he's talking about. Then we get to baptismal regeneration, which is what a lot of people will argue here. They will say, what well, means being born by baptism? But again, the counterproof is that people are often saved in the womb. People, um, pe- Christ loves the little children. It's a very 
you have to understand, you know, in the Primitive Baptist tradition, I think we study closely this idea that there is a, an eternal salvation that is in heaven with God, and there are temporary um, salvations in time, which is what uh, Peter chapter 3, I think I have it written down, yeah, 1 Peter 3.21, it says, the like figure whereunto even baptism does also save us. Not by putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God. There are self, there's salvation in time. There's a salvation from the temporary pains and, and um, trials of this life. And baptism is one of those. It's a salve, right? It's like something applied that makes you feel better. And so there are these types of salvation. And we know that Christ isn't talking about baptism here because, again... John the Baptist saved in the womb. Um, he's really talking about birth by conception. Okay, it is the it is again the water. What does it represent? It, it, under, it represents this sort of mysterious thing, right? The mysteriousness of pre-creation. You were you were conceived in your mother's womb, and nobody understands exactly how that's taking place. You're knit together, and there you are born in the water of your mother's womb. The the symbolic kind of pre-creative, sub, pre-substance, pre-order of your mother's womb that is being born of the water, you are made in matter, into life. You are incarnated in the womb. So you're born of the, of the water and of the spirit. And Christ actually clarifies that the water represents the flesh because what does he say immediately after? That which is born of the flesh is flesh. It's specifically this incarnation that happens in the mother's womb. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And now, so we've, we've dismissed all of the interpretations of born of the water that don't make sense. It's not born by the birth canal and it's not born through baptism. It's born in conception. You exist, right? And you must be born of the spirit. So the second requirement To see the kingdom of God, to enter into the kingdom of God, is to be born of the spirit. And then he explains that which is born of the flesh is flesh. So that's what's being born of the water, the flesh, the flesh which lusteth after sin, the flesh that cannot stay awake in the garden of Gethsemane, the flesh that desires all riches and mammon and all the things of this world. Being born of the spirit is spirit. Spirit is immaterial. Spirit is cannot be seen by eyes. It must be. It must be seen by spiritual eyes. It must be heard by spiritual ears. It must be um, understood and sensed in that cosmic realm. Marvel not that I said unto thee, born again. Uh, you must be born again. Don't be surprised. This ought not be surprising to you, Nicodemus. The wind blows where it listeth. Thou hearest the sound thereof. You can sense it. But you don't know from whence it came or where it's going. You don't understand God's ways. This is the encapsulation of what we call a mystery, right? A thing that is, that is beyond our comprehension. One big error in the thinking of modern man is that in in order for him to believe something, he has to understand it all. And that's a false idea. You don't need to understand everything. You don't know where the wind comes from. You don't know where it's going. You cannot tell where it will go to. So it is, so is everyone that is born of the spirit. That's exactly what it's like to be born again. It's not something that you do. It's something that is done to you. 
It's not something, there's no how-to guide, there's no step-by-step playbook, there is nothing for you to do. It is something done to you. You're not entering into your mother's womb. It is a spiritual rebirth, a spiritual regeneration. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, art thou a master of Israel and knoweth not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto you, we speak that we do know and testify that which we have uh, seen and ye receive not our witness. Again, we're going to return. We're going to talk more about the witness. We're going to talk more about uh, testifying Uh, before we close out here. I just you know, as we go into the Holy Week um, and we prepare to celebrate Easter, we prepare to celebrate the resurrection. Um, this is actually a perfect text to begin Holy Week with. God worked it out that way. God worked it out so that we'd be going into Holy Week and we would be thinking about our relationship to the new birth. Right. The new birth, which is represented by what? The resurrection. Right. Right. So as we think about the new birth, being born again, we have to be asking ourselves, what does that mean? Like what, how is that spiritually happening in us? And it happens by the power of Christ, by the power of the spirit of God moving in us and drawing this out of us. Um, Yesterday in New York, we've been talking about it the last few days uh, in, on Wednesday nights, we're reading out of Mark chapter 10. And I want to, I know I'm taking a lot of time, but I, I want to turn there because as we're going into Holy Week, I really think we ought to be attending, turning our attention to the Lord as much as possible. I mean, this is, and of course, every Sunday is the Lord's day. Every week we ought to be worshiping and glorifying him, of course. And as we prepare to celebrate the resurrection, it would do well in our hearts to think about the Lord in this process of approaching the crucifixion. It's been a powerful meditation for me lately. Uh, it's emotional to think about this. If you love, if you love Christ, if you love Christ, if he saved you, if he is your personal savior and he's your friend. And if you put yourself in his shoes, cause he was a man, he was a man who suffered like we suffered, who was made flesh so that he would suffer like we suffer And he's God, so he knows that it's Sunday today. Imagine the Sunday before the crucifixion for our Lord. A man who suffered like we suffered, who's looking forward just a few days, hours, before he will be betrayed by one of his friends, before the rest of his friends will desert him, before his arguably his closest friend will deny him three times, that he will be Beaten, slandered, abused, scourged, whipped, his hands nailed into a board, lifted up. He knows all that's coming. When you know something really bad's about to happen, how does that feel for you? Doesn't the anticipation make it worse? Imagine a perfect anticipation. Imagine a perfect anticipation of a perfectly wretched and wicked act being... Uh, this isn't like, oh, it's, it's not... It, on the scale of like zero to, to terrible, it's ultimately terrible. It is the ultimate punishment of sin. It is the ultimate um, accumulation of sin unearned. It is the ultimate um, burden and weight of the cross 
the trials of our lives do not compare to what our Lord held up and anticipated in perfection every moment of every day leading up to that point. So the weight of the cross gets closer, the compression of that anticipation and the density of the anticipation becomes greater and greater until he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's crying like tears, sweating like tears of blood and his disciples can't even stay awake to pray with him. He is all alone. He is a man with the weight of divinity on his shoulders, the weight of the sacrifice, the weight of all of our sins and the sins of all of his elect. And that's what he's looking forward to. And that's the price that had to be paid so that you and I could believe so that there would be something to believe in. And so that we could be saved from all of that sin. So we should pray. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, as we leave here today, Lord, we just thank you for your word, for the knowledge, Lord, that our salvation, our vision of the kingdom of God, Lord, isn't in our hands, Lord, but it's in your hands, Lord, that We will be saved according to your will, Lord, your will, which is perfect, Lord. Father, we're so grateful for your son, for the work that he did on the cross, approaching the cross and resurrection, Lord, for the work that he's done in the defeat of death and fear and wickedness and evil, Lord. We ask that these truths that we studied here today would dwell within us over the course of this week, Lord, that As we approach this time where we celebrate the resurrection, Lord, we would be extra attentive to the blessings that you provide to us, extra attentive to the work that our Lord has done here while in the incarnation, Lord. We just ask that we would be especially focused on that and that our behaviors would reflect a thoughtfulness and attention to his work here while he was here, Lord. Lord, we just ask that your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven, that you be glorified as you ought to be glorified, Lord, that anywhere that we have sinned or fallen short, Lord, that you would cover those sins for us, Lord, and that you would forgive us for these sins, Lord, and that you would help us to forgive others for their trespasses, Father. Father, we've got more to ask for that we can't remember at all, but we know that a perfect Savior intercedes on our behalf, Lord. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. I appreciate what Brother Danny's brought forth, and I want to continue along the same thoughts for just a few minutes. And I was going to speak out of Matthew chapter 26 and 27, and that is leading up to the crucifixion of Christ. And we might touch on that as well. But I would encourage you to go home and read Matthew chapter 26 and 27. And it does go over the account uh, leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Um, But... I I absolutely love the verses that Brother Danny brought forth and and, uh, appreciated the the good points that Brother Danny made. I don't want to take away at all from what Brother Danny has brought forth. Uh, Yesterday he spoke out of Hebrews chapter 8 and chapter 9, and he covered a lot of really great verses. And then afterwards I was telling him, I said, but there was two verses that were just super powerful that you sort of went over. And so Brother Danny doesn't mind me sharing that with him, and I appreciate the spirit in which he brings the message. Really good points, really good points. 
I saw some things as Brother Danny was uh, speaking on it that I'd like to, to emphasize more. I think it's fitting in a n- number of ways that uh, he uses the example of the wind. I grew up in West Texas, and I don't like the wind. I'm just being perfectly honest. As a result of the wind, it usually stirs up some dust. And when we were experiencing last night the gust of 50 and 60 miles an hour of wind, uh, it reminded me of the dust storms that I grew up in. I don't like the wind, and if I could stop it, I would. But I learned early on that I absolutely have zero control over the wind. As much as I don't like it, I can get out and talk to the wind. I can preach to the wind. I can will it. I can believe it. But it's not going to change the wind. I can't change the speed of it. I can't change the direction of it. I can't change when it's going to start. And I can't change when it's going to stop. And I think it's very appropriate that this lesson that Brother Danny brought forth this morning, that it emphasizes our salvation. Doesn't matter how much you will it. Doesn't matter how much you believe it. It doesn't matter how much you want to stop it or change the direction. It doesn't matter how much you want to control it or anything like that. You have absolutely zero power over the wind. And he says, he compares it to the spiritual birth. Glad Brother Danny brought that out. That he compares it to our spiritual birth. Basically saying, we have no control. If we don't have control over the wind, we also don't have any control over spiritual birth. Now, Brother Danny brought something else out that's important that is a theme that's taught through the scriptures. There are multiple salvations that are taught in the scriptures. And Brother Danny brought that out. And there is an eternal salvation And that eternal salvation is 100% completely of God. It doesn't matter if you believe it, if you accept it, if you're obedient, if you go down through a 12-step program, it has absolutely zero bearing on your eternal salvation. Zero. Brother Danny brought forth that there's two, there's multiple salvations, not just two, but it's described Uh, Men describe it this way as eternal and timely. You don't hear me use that term very much. But basically what Brother Danny brought forth, and it's a great verse that you mentioned, when he talks about a woman being saved in childbearing, that's not an eternal salvation. That's a deliverance. So there is an eternal aspect of it. And that's what this, uh, this text is talking about right here. That your eternal salvation, and I, I appreciated Brother Danny mentioning where it's uh, reading the verse where it says you must be born again. You have to be born again. What that means is, and what Brother Danny's brought forth is that you are, you've experienced, and I appreciated how he emphasized the natural birth. I've never heard it quite to that degree, but I appreciate that very much. And it was, it was helpful for me, and I appreciate that. But when it says be born again, it means that you're born spiritually, but it doesn't mean that you're born again spiritually. 
Once you're born spiritually, you don't ever have to be born again spiritually. That one spiritual birth happens. So when it says born again, it simply means that you've experienced the natural birth. But now you're going to be what's termed born again. You're going to experience the spiritual birth. But you're not going to be born again multiple times spiritually. Only one time will you be born. God doesn't have to born you multiple times spiritually. So when he's talking about being born again, he's not talking about multiple times spiritually being born again. I, I, I think this is a great example. What, I, I, don't, I don't bring this to light often. But there is one common denominator that's different between Old Baptist and everybody else. And I appreciate Brother Danny mentioning the two aspects of salvation. The belief that is taught blesses you. There's a great benefit in it. And it blesses you. All of the belief in all of these gospels, it blesses you. To have a more abundant life. But it's not going to give you life. It's not. Brother Danny brought forth the two aspects of salvation. Your eternal salvation. That is all of God. I appreciate you mentioning that. You can go over to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. And you hath he quickened who were dead and trespasses and sin. A dead person cannot believe. A dead person spiritually can't do anything. A dead person can't accept. A dead person can't do anything to get life. That life, and Brother Danny brought it forth, is the spirit working within you and he gives you life. But once you have life, then you have the blessing and opportunity to believe. And that's going to help that second aspect of your salvation when you live here in this life. And I appreciate Brother Danny mentioning that so appropriate and true belief, acceptance, believing in the miracles of God fall into that second category of your salvation here in this life. But it does not give you life. That's one of the main differences between Old Baptist and everybody else. Everybody else will teach that you've got to believe in order to get life. We believe the scriptures teach that you believe because you have life. And you have that and your belief blesses you to have an abundant life. So when you hear these promises in the scriptures, yes. And I appreciate Brother Danny emphasizing the importance of believing these promises. And he has a desire and a burden for us to believe them more. And it is going to enrich your life if you believe more and more the principles and the promises and the miracles of Jesus Christ. He said that the miracles that he performed, that he performed those miracles that we might believe. But it doesn't give us eternal life. It encourages us in the life that we have. So I love that example. I love what Brother Danny brought forth. I, I, I just, I love what he brought forth yesterday in Romans chapter, I mean, Hebrews chapter 8. So good, so rich. These are rich scriptures and really, really good. And you will do well to read them. You would do well to believe them. 
and it will enrich your life if you do that. It certainly will. But it's not going to give you eternal life. It's only going to enrich the life that God has already given you. Great points that you made, Brother Danny. Excellent points. Matthew chapter 26, chapter 27. Brother Danny's touched on this, but I'll just briefly. Uh, this, is, this sort of summarizes what takes place right before the crucifixion of Christ. It, it's, it's amazing how that those that were the closest to Christ, that were right there as followers of Christ, disciples of Christ, how that they denied Christ even in his most trying hours. Matthew chapter 26, it tells us about Judas and how that Judas uh, betrayed Christ for 30 pieces of silver. It says that, uh, says, what will you give me? Uh, in verse 15, Judas says, and what will you give me that I would deliver him unto you? And they coveted with him for 30 pieces of silver. And it says, and from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. And then he did betray him with a kiss. He told them, he says, the one that I uh, will, will kiss, that's the, that is the one. And he betrayed them with that. Christ knew it as brother Danny brought forth. It was, it was uh, excellent point. Christ knew exactly what he was about to endure about what he was about to experience. And yet his mind was set just like a flint. He was set on a target to, to follow through and to fulfill what his father had put upon him to do. And Brother Danny was right in emphasizing the example in, um, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. In this chapter, it talks about uh, Judas betraying Christ. And then it, it says that, that Judas went out. Uh, he took the money back uh, and it says that he went out and he hanged himself, that Judas uh, hanged himself. And then then Christ is talking and he he's saying that I'll be denied and and I'll be forsaken. And Peter said, well, Lord, I love you. I'm paraphrasing it here. And you can go through and I would encourage you to read this in detail. And as Brother Danny's brought forth, think on these things. It will bless you and your your mind will be. Uh, in the same frame of mind as Christ leading up to the crucifixion. But he said, I'm going to have folks that deny me. I'm going to have folks that forsake me. And Peter says, Lord, I'm not going to deny you. I'll never deny you. And he said, Peter, before the cock crows three times, you will deny me thrice. Peter said, I'll never forsake you. There's a verse in this chapter that goes on down to say that all of his disciples forsook him. You think that we don't have the ability to forsake Christ? We absolutely do. We're frail. Satan can get into the heart of any one of us to forsake the Lord. We look back upon our own lives and we can see areas that we've denied Christ and that we've forsaken Christ, that Christ wasn't always in the forefront of our mind, in the forefront of our thinking. We're no different than Peter, that we could easily deny Christ. Peter said, I'll never deny you, Lord. And it says that Peter did deny Christ. He said, even though uh, all would forsake him, he said, I'll never forsake you, Lord. Yet Peter did forsake him. There was a young girl and she said, 
you're one of his. He said, I'm not. And he denied he denied knowing Christ. And then another young lady came to him. She says, I've seen you with him. You're you're one of his one of his followers trying to align him with Christ. And maybe he was afraid. But for whatever reason, he says he followed Christ afar off and he denied Christ. And, And the second one that came to him says, your speech gives you away. We know you're one of his. And it says that he denied then. And you know how he changed his speech? It says that he began to curse so that he wouldn't be associated with uh, with Christ. And then all of a sudden, the cock crew, uh, the cock crowed, the cock didn't crew, the cock crowed three times. Uh, you can tell I'm not a farmer. But um, Peter recognized that, yes, he had denied the Lord. In Luke chapter 22, Brother Danny brought this forth, and I'm so glad he did. Really, really, really good. In chapter 22, Jesus Christ is in the garden, and he had asked Peter and the disciples to to stand guard and watch, and he would go in and pray, and he'd come back and says their eyes were heavy, and they they couldn't even stay awake while Christ would go into the garden and pray. I'm sure they didn't understand the weight of the matter. They naturally were weary and they he would come back and they were asleep. And a, a second time he came back and they were asleep and he just let them sleep on. But Christ was having close communion with God, with his father in the garden. And here and I think this is a real important point. And Brother Danny sort of alluded to this. And I'm, I'm so glad that he, he touched on this. But in chapter 20. To verse 44, verse 42 of Luke, it says, Christ is praying to the Father. And he says, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. I, I interpret that to some degree as Christ is seeing the crucifixion that he's about to experience. But Christ is also seeing the weight of the sins of the people that he's going to represent. And Christ is not saying, I'm not willing to do what you've called me to do. But I believe he's saying, is there any other way? Maybe from the standpoint of a natural man, Brother Danny brought forth, he's, he experienced the feelings of man. But yet he was also God. And I believe he was praying to the father, not in disobedience or in doubt or anything like that. But but all of a sudden, Christ is in the setting here praying to the father, just about to go to the cross. And and I believe he's saying, God, if there's any other way. But if there's not, I'm willing to do what you call me to do. And it says, and and I know that this is a a weighty matter. It says, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. I believe that Christ is, is saying, is there any other way of salvation? But, Father, I'm willing to do what you call me to do. And I believe that Christ was beginning to experience the weight of the sins of the people, of his people from all eternity and I can't even bear the weight of my own sin, much less the sins of others and the sins of people that have abused him and the people that have turned against him. 
And yet Christ is going to experience the weight of all of those sins. The reason that you and I have a hope and assurance of living in heaven someday is because your sins were placed upon Jesus Christ and he bore those sins upon the cross of Calvary. And so I believe that Christ was beginning to experience the weight of your sins right here. And he said, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. I think he's just simply saying, is there any other way? But then he also says in the same sentence, he says, nevertheless, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. And that ought to be the theme that we live by in our life. We have certain preferences that we experience in life, but our greatest desire shouldn't be what our preferences are in life. The, 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 the course that we would like it to be, but nevertheless, God, not my will, but thy will be done. And Christ was setting a great example right here for us. And then it says, and there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. So no doubt he was from a physical standpoint. He was to some degree experiencing the weight and the burden of the crucifixion and of our sins being placed on him as well. And it says that an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. And then verse 44 says, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. He's experiencing the fullness of the, of the burden of, uh, of the situation and of our sins. And it says, in being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down on the ground. There was uh, in the 70s, maybe before the 70s, there was a, a group of men, ministers that read this. And uh, in the South, in Texas, uh, Arkansas, and places like that, that actually believed that this was where the atonement happened in the garden. And they uh, would teach that, and they embraced that, and they believed that this is at least where the atonement began because of this one verse right here saying that, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. I believe that what it means right here, this is my understanding of this, whether or not Christ shed great drops of blood, I think the principal point for us to believe right here and understand is that he was suffering so much agony that his sweat was as it were. It doesn't say it was, but as it were great drops of blood. In our mind, that should be the weight of the burden that he's bearing right there. The greatest Expression of agony that we could possibly ever experience. This is where this portion of text is where the song that we sang today, that's Grace is one of her favorite songs. Many woes had Christ endured Gethsemane. This is where that song came from out of these verses right here. It says, and being in agony, he prayed even more earnestly and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. That is an expression that we are supposed to see, to realize the great burden that Christ was bearing at that time. You can go back to Matthew chapter 26, Matthew chapter 27. It, it talks, um, he says again in verse 39, he says, and he went a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as 
thou wilt. And Christ continues on with the disciples there. Uh, Judas betrays Christ with the kiss. And then they apprehend Christ. They take him to a mock court. Uh, They found no fault in verse 20. In in chapter 26, it talks about how that uh, they delivered Barabbas uh, unto the people who was a noted criminal, even though Christ, uh, there was no charge that they could lay against Christ. It also talks about Pilate, Pilate's, Pilate's wife warning Pilate. And she said, I've had dreams about this man. And, and, and Pilate uh, himself realized that there was not any fault. And he washed his hands of the, uh, tried to wash his hands of the crucifixion and of the accusation of Jesus Christ. I would encourage you, you'll be blessed if you'll go home and read Matthew chapter 26 and Matthew chapter 27. It's the account that's given, it summarizes the accounts that's given in the other three Gospels about leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Probably, not probably, it was the the weightiest I used the word weighty the other day and somebody said, that's not a word. I Googled it and it is a word. It's the it's the it's the heaviest burden that Christ experienced leading up to the crucifixion. He realizes the he realizes the weight of it. He realizes what he's called to do and he's willing to do the will of the father. The angel strengthening God strengthens him. To continue on. And because of what Jesus Christ did. We have a hope that we'll live in heaven with him someday.